listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for May 2013. Today's episode is titled Work, Obedience, Growth, and Prosperity. What is the key to prosperity? In a created universe, the key to prosperity must be to wisely utilize the principles of the universe. This means that a person must know the principles of the universe. Some of these principles can be discerned heuristically through general revelation, the revelation of God in creation. But the most reliable source is a special revelation, the revelation of God, the Creator, found in Scripture. To operate a profitable organization, the organization must first be based on biblical principles. The organization's management team and its workers must be wise, faithful, diligent students of Scripture. They must receive teaching by godly people in order to mature and grow in their understanding of Scripture. This will enable the organization to align with the will and ways of God and therefore prosper. The tangible evidence of true prosperity is an organization that grows at a healthy pace, enjoys favor in the delivery of its value proposition, develops a stable life-giving culture, builds an outstanding reputation, and reaps financial profit. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Work, Obedience, Growth, and Prosperity. Okay, my next session is uh, Work, Obedience, Growth, and Prosperity. So do you think those are connected? Obedience, growth, and prosperity? Well, I think the scripture shows us they're connected, so let's just take a look at Psalm 1, and perhaps we can see a connection. Scripture reads, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that blow the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, going back to my background, uh, I've read that psalm many times and heard messages on that psalm. And I've always just seen that psalm in light of me personally, or my family, or my church. I never really saw it as something that was, was relevant to the workplace something that was relevant to public policy. So I was very much a dualist, and as Dennis said during the Q&A, we're all um, dualistic to some degree. Hopefully we're on the road to becoming recovering dualists. <laughs> and that's the, the journey for all of us is get to that state where we're recovering. So I, I really didn't see this was applicable to the workplace. So to begin to think about this in light of the workplace has really changed, profoundly changed, the way I view work. In fact, many people now think I'm a little bit fanatical about some of the things I say about work because one of the things I ask myself is, okay, if I'm going to work in an organization, do I want the organization to be blessed? So how many of you would like the organization to be blessed? You like that? Or how many would you would you would like your organization to prosper? You want that? Okay. How many of you want to prosper? Okay, well this psalm tells us how to be blessed. 
It tells us how to prosper individually and organizationally. So you say, okay, well, this now this makes it more relevant, doesn't it? Maybe we ought to talk about this. So let's just uh, let's approach this with an understanding that this is applicable to every jurisdiction: the, the church, the individual, the uh, the family, the workplace, and in public policy, which is civil government. All right, well, let's break it down. Let's talk about obedience first. The nice thing about this psalm is it takes these concepts in the order in which I was given them. Obedience, growth, prosperity. So the first idea is obedience. What does obedience look like in the workplace? So we go back to the first verse here. Blessed is the man. By the way, the word blessed, uh, common, the common root idea of that is to speak well of. To speak well of. So, when you're blessing someone, you're speaking well of them. You are speaking truth over them. You are speaking alignment with the will and ways of God over them. So that's how you bless people. When I was in China here two weeks ago, I was training faculty of a school and teaching them how to think biblically about work and about about education, about training their students. So we got into a conversation at one point about how to serve the students. So I said, uh, well, what do you do to bless your students? How do you serve your students? And one of the faculty members held up his hand and said, well, I, you know, help them do what they want to do. And so I said, does that mean help them do their will according to their ways? And so he kind of paused. <laughs> and he said, I never thought about it like that. I said, maybe you should. Maybe you should ask yourself, what really blesses this student? What, is, what truth can I speak over this student? What truth can I point this student to that will line them up with the will and ways of God? You see, that's what will really bless them. So when he starts out talking about blessed, by the way, this is the first word of the Psalms. You know, many commentators that I've read think Psalm 1 is a picture of the whole book. Okay, so this is the very first word of the first Psalm, blessed, which means speak alignment, alignment with the will and ways of God over people. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. Now this word wicked here literally means morally corrupt. Or stand in the way that sinners take, now this means, here when it talks about uh, sinners, it means legally guilty. It's a different sense here. Or set on the company of mockers. So you have three metaphors here, and notice that he's, he's telling you about blessing from a don't do this sense. Now how many of you have been trained and taught that you don't, don't tell people, not don't do that, you tell them what to do? You know, most of the time, that's what I've heard is don't ever you know, speak to people or teach people in the negative. Teach them in the positive. Well, you have to talk to the Lord about this because he chooses, chooses at this point to use the negative to convey his point. So he's saying don't do this because what, these three pictures here of sit, walk, stand, walking is a picture of our way of life. Standing is a picture of our position in life. 
Sitting is a, is a picture of our identification in life. So you look at those three metaphors, they're essentially, I think, saying the same thing. He's just saying it three different ways. Now, I was recently in my, my daily Bible reading, reading through the book of Genesis, and I was reading about the dream that Pharaoh had that, that Joseph went to interpret. And you may recall that that dream was given in two different ways. And Joseph says the dream is one and the same. You just heard it two different ways. And the reason you heard it in two different ways is to make it even more clear that this is indeed what's going to happen. It's like this is for emphasis. This is for clarity. Let's get very clear here what we're saying. So he uses now three different metaphors to say essentially the same thing. It is, if you want to be blessed, don't walk in the will and ways of man. And I'm going to tell you three different ways to hopefully get you to get this. Don't do this. So first, you don't walk like they walk. You don't follow their principles. You don't follow their practices. You don't follow their definitions. Let's just take an example of that. What's the definition of success? Hmm? Well, most people think success is denominated in dollars, don't they? Right. Okay. So, for example, um, who knows who Carlos Slim is? So, you know who Carlos Slim is. So, who is he? He's the richest man in the world. What's he worth? The last number I saw, which is about nine months, nine ten months old, what came out of. Uh, yeah, I believe, it, or I believe about last early part of a year ago, about a year ago now, was $72 billion, something like that. Bill Gates is a paltry $40, 50000000000 billion. I need way behind him now. Okay. So is Carlos Slim a success? Depends, no, yes. I mean, what is he? Is he a success or not? No, the eyes of the world, he is. The eyes of the world, Most people, and how many of us think like the world? Oh, well, I don't want to admit that, but most of us do. Most of us look at a guy like that. He's got money. We say it's a success. We default to that. Right. That is our default thinking. Okay? That is the ways of the world. Now, Jesus died broke. Was he a success? Yes. Wait a minute. He didn't have any money. You know he was living off the charity of women? He didn't have a job. He was re rejected by the religious and political leaders, abandoned by his followers. Does this sound like success? Huh? No, it isn't. The world looks at that and says, nothing there to emulate. Right. Not interested. Because, see, we don't define success biblically. We define it like the world does, based on what we see. You see, real success is doing what God put you here to do. That's what real success is. And I would, I would appeal to you to use John 17.4 as the basis for that definition. So, it's very easy for us to get caught up in walking in the ways of man, the way they see things. Or, he says here, standing in the way of sinners. Now, when you stand with someone, what are you saying by standing with someone? You're with them. We're in agreement. We're together. We're unified. We're yoked together on some position or some point. So standing with sinners who are legally guilty is not smart. That's not the way to blessing. And then about sitting with a company of mockers, you know, who is it, 
when you have a, a panel setting, what are they normally doing? Like the Supreme Court, how do they conduct their courts? They sit, don't they? Okay. If you have judges to a competition, they're seated at a table watching the competition, aren't they? So that's a very common posture for someone that's judging something, that making a call is they're seated. So I think that's the picture here. So it doesn't matter whether you're walking, you're sitting, you're standing. The, the picture is always the same. The three metaphors reinforce the same point, And that is, if you want to be blessed, don't walk in the will and the ways of the world. That's not going to go well. It's not going to happen. And now he says, okay, let me give you a contrast. Okay, the contrast to this is, but, whose delight, and this word for delight here, is, is really, it's all about pleasure. It's all about valuing something. It's all about really getting excited about something. Whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, to a Jewish man, at the time David wrote this, what did the law of the Lord represent? It represented the scripture. That was his scripture. That's what he had, was the Old Testament law. You know, he's writing the psalm. The psalm isn't even finished at the time he's writing this. He's looking at the Mosaic law. That's largely what he has, probably the first five books of the Bible, maybe a few others. But he had a very limited canon. But he's saying here, if I'm going to be blessed, I've got to get very excited and delight in the law of the Lord and, who med and meditate on it. And this word meditate means to murmur. You ever see anybody murmur, just kind of walk around murmuring, muttering to themselves? My wife says I do that. I mutter to myself. And she doesn't like it. She wants me to talk to her. And I want to mutter as I'm pondering something. So, but I have good standing here. I can always point to this psalm and say, look, I am walking in the will and ways of God by muttering here. And murmuring, murmuring here. So he meditates on the law day and night. Now, what does that mean? What does this mean? What's this look like? Well, somebody that really delights in, in the law, which is the revelation of God, what, what, what might you see in a person like that? What would you expect to see? Somebody who is, how about somebody who is just consumed with seeing everything through a biblical lens? Have you ever met anybody that when you when they talk to you, they just spoke scripture to you? Yep. Probably the most, with all due respect to my dear friend Dennis, one of the most godly men I ever met was a, a coal miner. I met him back when I was a graduate student. He was from England. He was probably 75, maybe pushing 80 years old at the time I met him. When you talk to him, he just spoke scripture to you. It was the most phenomenal thing. I remember being at a picnic on a Saturday afternoon, sitting down and talking to him. And he's just citing one text after another in response to the conversation. That's like that's all he could say was scripture. And when he prayed, you felt like you needed to take notes. <laughs> like, this is unbelievable. This is a man that really loves the word. And, and I asked him, what, what, did he, what did he do? How, what did his days look like? Well, he went to the mine early in the morning and worked all day long. And then at night, you know, he's tired. So he goes home. And to stay awake so he could study, he grinds sand between his teeth. 
just so he could stay awake and study. Because he, he, he was going to go, on the weekend, he was going to go teach somewhere. So every weekend he went and taught, taught scripture someplace. But he said, you know, I'm called to the mind. I'm called, that's what I, God has created me to do. But he meditated on the word 24-7. I don't know if he ever slept. My goodness. I've never seen anybody like this. Well, I think I got a picture with that encounter of somebody who delighted in Scripture. He would pay the price, no matter what it was, to stay awake to study the Word. And there's no end of studying the Word. There's no end of learning and growing. There's no other book like Scripture. It is alive. The more you study it, the more alive it will be to you. And so... What you hear heavier is a picture of a person that's just falling in love with the Word of God and who's pondering it and viewing everything in life based on what the Word of God has to say about this issue. Then it's talked about you know, sales and marketing strategy. Scripture addresses this. He talked about mergers and acquisitions. Yes, we can talk about mergers and acquisitions from Scripture. Scripture talks about finance. In fact, I've got uh, now five seminars on finance. And every time I touch the whole topic of finance, I get overwhelmed. Because there's so much in Scripture on finance. It is mind-blowing sometimes. And I don't pretend to claim that I've exhausted it. I think I see through a glass darkly. I've got a little glimpse of it. You know, last week in Hong Kong, I delivered a six-hour seminar on personal finance. I didn't even get through half my material. There's so much in Scripture to deal with just personal finance. So you start looking at this and say, wow, we have a book, a revelation from God, the Creator's handbook, to tell us how to live life. Now, how many of you had a problem to solve this week in the workplace? Anybody have a problem to solve this week? What did you do to solve that problem? What's the first thing you did? Hmm? You worried. That, that's what most people do. You are being honest. Thank you. You're you're not you're not giving me a religious answer. You're giving me an honest answer. Yeah, that's right. You worried. Well, what other what else do you do? Schedule a meeting. Schedule a meeting. All right. That's right. Well, schedule a meeting. What else do you do? Huh? Go try to figure it out. Not go look for some pundit that might have some wisdom on this. Okay? Huh? Google it. Google it. That's what you do now is Google it. Well, in, in Asia, they immediately said, well, you, you sit down and you make a list of the pros and cons. Yeah, I said, then you pick out the, you pick out the best option. I said, okay. I said, suppose, suppose that you were in a church context and you had a problem. What would you do? That's right. First thing you do is pray. I said, well, why did you approach problem solving differently? In one context, you pray. In the other context, you just you know get in there and work it, make it happen. Why are they different? Well, again, that's the dualism in us, and it reflects the reality that we are not murmuring over the Word. If we are murmuring over the Word and muttering and just musing over the Word, to get into some alliteration here, just making the Word the focal point of how we approach life, then we begin to really get focused on the Word. You know, there's a fundamental reality that every one of us has got to deal with. Whether you know it or not, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. And that is, there is a starting point to your life. And everything in your life is called, in the beginning, God. 
That's the very first words of Scripture. It is the reality that we all have to deal with. The challenge is, what is our view of God? And the more sound our view of God is, which comes through Scripture, the more sound we can live, the more blessed our life will be. Because our life will be aligned with the will and ways of God. Please know also that blessing does not mean an easy life. Blessing does not equate to an easy life. Blessing equates to a life of obedience, of faithfulness, doing what you've been called to do according to God's will and God's ways. That's what blessing is. Don't, don't get postmodern here on me. See, it's this postmodern thing that's all focused on comfort, pleasure, and convenience. That's a very postmodern mindset. If that's how you measure things on, well, I, it, this is not comfortable for me. This is not fun for me. This is not convenient for me. What's in it for me? If that's where you are, you are very postmodern. When you begin to really meditate on the Word, you will lose that postmodernism because now the agenda will be God's will and God's ways. And what you have to sacrifice to do that will no longer be an issue because you will willingly do that. Okay, so here we have the contrast. The ways of the, ways of the world, the will and ways of man, are the will and ways of God. That's the contrast. If you want to be blessed, the key is obedience to the will and ways of God. That's the first step in blessing. So let's go on here to talk about growth. Growth in the workplace. It says then, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water. Now, did that tree plant itself? Did you plant yourself? Did you decide where you were going to be born? Did you decide when you would be born? Decide who your parents would be? Did you decide whether you'd be a male or female? Did you decide what your personality would be? What your aptitude, your skill, and ability would be? Any of that? No. They were given to you. You were planted by God into the context that He wanted you to be in so you can do what He created you to do. Because He has a plan. He has a meta-narrative and you have a part in this meta-narrative. So this is what he, the picture is here. is a tree planted by streams of water. And that tree planted, when you plant something by streams of water, there's a couple of things you know. What do you know about the ground? It's soft and what else? Fertile. We know that the ground around streams is going to have lots of minerals in it, lots of nutrients. We just know that because that's how God's universe works. We also know there's water there. What the tree needs, those nutrients, those water, it's right there. You're planted with the resources you need to do what you're called to do. So this is, this is the picture. Growth in Christ is growing where you're planted. Now, no matter what the situation may be, and all of us have varied levels of difficulty in life, varied levels of challenge, there's no challenge in your life that God is surprised about. Right. He knows exactly what's going on in your life. Now, how many of you feel from time to time that God has forgotten about me? Yeah, yeah. We all feel that way. On some level, we feel like, God, do you understand how difficult it is? Right. You don't see what I'm going through? I mean, I, I, every time I talk about this, I can't help it. Recall Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. Remember, they were 
they were sent to Philippi after Paul had been specifically forbidden by the Spirit to go into Asia. Right. See, the Spirit will, will block you from doing things because He doesn't want you to do those things. He wants you to do other things because you're not God's answer to every problem. Okay? You are God's answer to the problems He's called you to respond to. So he sends them to Philippi. They get to Philippi, and he, Paul's getting annoyed by this, this demon-possessed little girl who's actually speaking some truth, and finally he gets sick of this, so he casts out the demon. Well, suddenly the business guy that was making money off this little girl sees a loss. So he's unhappy, and he had political clout, so he gets Paul and Silas arrested. Not only that, they get beaten, they get stripped, they're starved, they're thrown into prison, and here it is midnight after a long, hard day. This was not a good day. And everything has gone wrong in this day. And I don't know about you, but how I would be responding. I would be talking to the Lord and saying, Lord, uh, have you forgotten about me? You sent me here. I've been faithfully serving you. And look, here, look at where I am. This is not a good thing. That's what I would be saying. But Paul and Silas are doing what? Singing and praising God. In the midst of great difficulty, great trial. Well, see, that's that's the picture. You know, whatever there's no situation that God has not ordained, that He's not into, that He's not doing something. And it can be very ugly and nasty, it can be very difficult. And I'm reminded that one of the most ugly scenes of history was Christ on the cross. At the same time as one of the most blessed of all events. It was indeed the seminal event of reality because that's where the atonement was taken care of. So you see, God is into planting us where we need to be and feeding us with the nutrients that we need so we can do what he's called us to do. And if we're faithful to obey, then we will bear fruit in season and our leaf will never wither, which means even when things are not that busy and you don't see a lot of fruit, there's still life. There's still life. So this is what the critical essence of growth. You've got to grow and walk out the reality of what God has placed you on this planet to do. So let me just go on to the last point, which is the prosperity. It says then, whatever they do prospers. Whatever they do prospers. Now this Hebrew word translated prosper is a word which means to push forward in various senses. So it's a way of making progress going forward. Now today, we view prosperity or prosper in the sense of making money, making lots of money. By the way, how much is enough? How much is money is enough? A little bit more. You, you remind me of my brother-in-law who's a musician, and in the basement of his home, he's got his guitar gallery. And uh, I'm down there with him looking at all his guitars on the wall. I said, well, you got enough? He said, no, no, I need one more. That's what you said. Never enough. Got to have a little more. How much is enough? How much is enough? Can I suggest enough? You can't answer because you know the answer. You know the answer I want, I should say. Can I try? Okay, okay go. Um, just enough. That's a good one. I like that. I like that. Having what you need to do what you're called to do. Now, what's the definition of provision? It's a military term. It means what is used to accomplish a specific task drawn from a 
say it another way, having what you need to do what you're called to do. Okay? So provision is having what you need to do what you're called to do. Prosperity is having what you need to do what you're called to do. You see, the definition in the kingdom of provision and prosperity are the same. Now, what happens if you have more than what you think you, you need to do what you're called to do? What's that? It's provision for something. You see, God is always into strategically deploying resources. So if you have been given more than what you perceive that you need, there is a reason for it. It's not random. I uh, was speaking at a church out in North Dallas a few years ago, and I, uh, I was talking on this point, and I asked, I said, what happens if God dropped $100 million in your bank account, no strings attached today? What would you do? And immediately, one of the ladies in the audience yelled, Go to Neiman's! <laughs> you know, I shared this in China and nobody got it. <laughs> but you get it. You understand. You all understand Neiman's. I tried to tell them. I said, that was a joke. They kind of laughed kind of weakly. But at least you laughed. That was good. But this lady played right into it. I said, yeah, that's my point. See, your, your first thought when you, you get what looks like excess is, what about what's in it for me? The first thing you should be doing is saying, Lord, this is your servant. Uh, I've noticed some extra funds. What does the master wish to do with these extra funds? Right. Now, do you really want to do that? Yeah, I don't know. Can I have a little bit for a new set of golf clubs? Would that be okay? Well, and there's nothing wrong. God may want you to have a new set of golf clubs. I pray that he'll grant me that. But the point is, you're looking to him to direct you. Correct. He's the master, you're the servant. Right. And so if you're going to prosper in God's universe, you've got to get real clear what prosperity is. And it's not primarily money. Now you see, I gave you a list here of the words that are commonly translated prosper in Scripture. There's 14 words here. 13 of them are in the Old Testament. So those of you that don't value the Old Testament you are cutting off a lot of revelation about a simple topic like prosperity if you don't value the Old Testament. Because that's where we find most of the understanding of prosperity is in the Old Testament. And you can see from some of these words some of the, some of the things it means, like to break out, to push forward, uh, good in the widest sense, abundance, um, being right, sound, beautiful, uh, circumspect, highly intelligent, uh, excel, to enlarge, to be safe, uh, to be anointed, morally righteous, fill or be full, to build, to lift up high. These are different nuances of the idea of prospering. Now you can see there's certainly elements of financial provision in there, but it's not the driver. You know, financial provision is just a tool. In fact, may I suggest to you that money is, a, money is one thing and one thing alone. It's a tool to do the will of God. And until you see money that way, then money will in some way have a hold on you. And you will be worshiping money at some level. So you've got to get very clear on what money is so you can see what really provision is and what prosperity is. So if we're going to prosper, if obedience is going to lead to growth, which leads to prosperity, we need to understand what prosperity is going to look like and prosperity may not look the way you look. You may think to prosper, 
that by age 65 you need to be retired and on a boat somewhere in the Caribbean sipping uh, some kind of nice exotic drink and, and fishing all day long. That may be your definition of prosperity. It's probably not God's. Because God has sent you here to be His emissary to execute a role in His meta narrative. And so your job is to faithfully grow up and mature in Christ so you can play that role and learn how to hear in the Spirit well enough that you can discern that role. And it probably is not going to be a vacation, an internal vacation, or even a, a long vacation in this life. Now please understand, God is all in favor of recreation. He's all in favor of you being rested and, and having time off. He's in favor of that. You see in the Old Testament, He has elaborate feasts that go on for you know two weeks at a time. He's not, he's not afraid of that. But you see, he is all about being the master. And he's all about deciding what it is that you are going to do. And he's about you discerning his will. That's what he's about. So if you're going to learn how to walk faithfully with him, how to truly be obedient and to grow and then to prosper, you've got to be very clear that you are the servant and he's the master. I think as the Apostle Paul got older, he saw himself increasingly in different light. It's very easy for someone to, like the Apostle Paul to exalt his role as an apostle. If you were an apostle like the Apostle Paul, wouldn't you want everybody to know you're an apostle? Look at me, I'm the, I'm the apostle. Yeah, you show respect. Okay? That's what we want. But you see, the Apostle Paul, the more he matured in Christ, that role of being an apostle become became more and more secondary. The primary thing he wanted to be known for was being a slave. A slave of Jesus Christ. That's where he got to. I think that's a picture for us. We've got to get there. So our only agenda is his will, his ways, and that's how we prosper in his universe through obedience, growth, and finally prosperity, which is aligned with him. So may we have grace to do that in Jesus' name.